You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Our reading comes from Romans 11, uh, 1 to 10. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear, to this very day. And David says, May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and their backs be bent forever. Good afternoon, everyone. I hope you've had a good weekend so far, uh, but I also hope that you're ready to get stuck into Romans 11. Uh, This is quite a a big chapter, lots of things to get our heads around. And so we're going to spend three weeks uh, thinking about this. So as we start our first uh, chunk, our first passage, verses 1 to 10, let's pray and ask that God would be with us. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for the the book of Romans. Uh, We thank you for the many things that we've learned from it so far. And we pray you'd be with us now as we begin this journey through Romans chapter 11. Uh, Please help us to understand more about your plan of salvation and how understanding that can actually help us as we live our daily lives. Amen. When I became a Christian at the age of 19, I found myself part of a new community, a new family. It was exciting to make lots of new friends and learn from people older and wiser than me. I loved studying the Bible with people and praying and talking about God. It was just great to be part of the church, part of the people of God. But one thing I couldn't understand was why there weren't more Christians around. You know, Why was the church not bigger? I came to understand early on that God calls people to himself and he shows them grace first so that they will then trust him. But I wondered why God wasn't choosing more people. In fact, it it seemed then and still today that the church is shrinking in Australia. People are increasingly hostile towards Christians and our society is beginning to see us as a threat to the nation's future. I mean, this just doesn't seem to make sense. And when confronted with this dilemma, it's easy for us to feel that God has rejected his people. Of course, not individual Christians. He's not going to reject us, but maybe the church in general. You know, perhaps God seems unhappy with the church in Australia, and so maybe he's rejected us. You know, maybe he's, he's handed us over to a hostile society and he's allowing churches to shrink and decay. I mean, this may seem far-fetched to you, but it's a thought that crosses the minds of many Christians. And it can be hard to know how else to explain the state of the church in Australia. It gets even harder when we look at the birth of the church where the gospel went out to the Jews and many of them rejected it. They refused to accept that Jesus was their Messiah. At the end of Romans 10, Paul says, 
Israel are a disobedient and obstinate people. And so perhaps God does sometimes reject his people. Uh, maybe he's had enough of us in Australia and he's moving on to other parts of the world, just like he seemed to move on from the Jews and focused on the Gentiles. As Aaron has preached through chapters 9 and 10, we've been confronted with the fact that the vast majority of Jews in Paul's day refused to trust in Christ and therefore came under God's judgment. They were God's special chosen people, yet they were stumbling and failing to obtain righteousness. Paul knows this is a troubling fact, and so now in Romans chapter 11, he considers the current state of Israel and then the nation's certain fate. Today, we're going to look at verses 1 to 10 to see that the Jews' response is exactly what we expect from how God has worked in the past. In fact, salvation history reveals a pattern of God often choosing to uh, save just a remnant. This is a truth that's still relevant today and will help us to understand that the shifting size and status of the church does not mean that God has rejected his people. So let's jump into our passage where we see that God had not rejected Israel in Paul's day. So have a look at your Bibles in verse 1. I'll read it out. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I'm an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham, from the tribe of Benjamin. Paul strongly declares that God has not rejected his people. And he gives three arguments to back up this statement. And the first is that there were actually Jewish Christians. Paul himself was a believing Jew. He's the real dealer, a descendant of Abraham, even from one of the better tribes, the tribe of Benjamin. In Philippians chapter 3, he goes into even more details about his Jewish credentials. And let's not forget that Paul was a Christian killer at one time. So the fact that he became a Christian at all is evidence that God had not rejected his people. Paul wasn't the only one either. In fact, all the first Christians were Jews. The 12 apostles were Jews. On the day of Pentecost, when Peter preached his first sermon, 3,000 Jews became Christians. As we saw recently in Acts chapter 6, a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Christianity was first and foremost a movement of Jewish believers. But Paul goes on with a second argument to prove that God has not rejected his people. This is the next point in our outline. In verses 2 to 6, Paul teaches that there was a remnant of chosen Jews. Have a look at the very first part of verse 2. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. It's likely that Paul is picking up language from the Old Testament here. Uh, listen to Psalm 94, verse 14. It says this, For the Lord will not reject his people. He will never forsake his inheritance. In verse 2, Paul is reminding his readers of this promise. And he's explaining in terms of foreknowledge. Remember back in Romans 8 verse 29, we learned about how God foreknows his people. You know, those he foreknows, he predestines and calls and justifies and glorifies. He doesn't foreknow their response to his calling. Rather, he chooses to know them apart from their actions. He chooses them by grace. Paul is reminding us here that God foreknew Israel, and so he can't turn his back on the nation. And it is actually important to be clear here that we're talking about 
a nation, not individuals. Now, Paul isn't saying that all Jews are saved, but rather the Jewish people are his chosen people, and they will always be his chosen people. This idea will become important for next week's sermon, so make sure you tune in for that one. So this idea then leads into an example that Paul draws upon from Israel's history. You can see in verse 2 that he uses Elijah's day as an example. Do you remember who Elijah was? He was a prophet, wasn't he, during the, the monarchy in Israel. And remember how he had a contest against the prophets of Baal. Uh, they each prayed to their God that uh, their God would send down fire to light up a wood uh, to light up the wood on their altar. And who won? That's right. It was Elijah because the Lord answered his prayer. And then what did Elijah do next? He killed all the prophets of Baal. I mean, that bit tends to be skipped over in the kids' Bible storybooks. Anyway, after a huge victory, uh, Elijah then gets a death threat, a death threat from Queen Jezebel. Uh, he freaks out and he flees the country. He falls into a deep depression and asks God to take his life. But God encourages him and reveals that Elijah is not alone. Uh, Paul summarizes it quite well for us in Romans 11. So have a look. We'll read from verse 2 through to verse 4. Don't you know what Scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left, and they're trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Who is the they that Elijah complains of? It's not the foreigners. It's the people of Israel. God's own people have turned their backs on him, and they're worshipping Baal, a false god. And so Elijah believes that he's the only faithful Israelite left. But God has news for him. There are 7,000 people that God has reserved for himself. And so while the mass of Israel had rejected God, God had not rejected Israel. And so a remnant of Israel, Israelites had been chosen and protected by God. And so Paul's argument becomes crystal clear in verses 5 and 6. Have a listen. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. Here's a key point that comes out of that. The remnant is chosen by grace, not by their faithfulness, not by their deeds. Paul is saying that just like in the days of Elijah, God has worked in the hearts of some Jews so as to bring them to faith in Christ. And why did he choose some of those Jews to be Christians? Was it because they were good law-keeping Jews? No. Was it because they offered lots of sacrifices to God? No. Was it because they were just really good, faithful Jews? No. And was it perhaps because he looked down the passage of time and saw that they would respond to him in faith? No. He chose them because he freely decided to. Their salvation was based on his grace, not their works. And so they were part of the remnant because of grace, not because of works. Otherwise, grace would not be grace. 
if God chose some Jews to become Christians because they are worthy of it, then that wouldn't be God showing grace and mercy. But what about the rest of the Jews? What about all of Paul's people in his day who rejected Jesus as their Messiah? Well, this leads us to Paul's third argument. Why can we believe that God has not rejected his people? Because the non-elect Jews were hardened and did not receive righteousness. Now, hold on. That might sound like I'm saying that God has rejected his people. But let's think of this in light of Romans 9 verse 6. If you've got a Bible open, you can flip back to Romans 9 verse 6. and I'll read it out for us. It is not as though God's word had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. In other words, God can be faithful to his promises to Israel while still hardening some Jews in judgment. God can be faithful to his promise to save all Israelites because not all Israelites are true Israelites. I mean, Aaron has covered these points before, so let's see what's new that Paul adds here. Have a look at chapter 11, verse 7. What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. As we learned in Romans 9 verse 31, the Jews pursued righteousness but did not attain it because they sought it by works. But Paul is pointing out here that some Jews did actually obtain righteousness. The elect Jews did. The chosen Jews who received it by faith. They were the remnant. Those Jews whom God did not choose were hardened. They were the non-elect. God did not elect to give them grace and to save them. Now, perhaps we accept this as being true of how God relates to pagans and Gentiles. They're kind of already on the outer. But now Paul is saying that it's also true of the Jews. Some Jews are hardened by God. This is a really troubling idea. How could God do this to his promised people? Yet Paul quotes the Old Testament three times to back it up. Uh, In verse 8, he's fused a quote from Isaiah 29 verse 10 and Deuteronomy 29 verse 4. And then in verses 9 and 10, he quotes Psalm 69 verses 22 and 23. Uh, In other words, Paul quotes from the law, uh, from the prophets and the writings, the three major divisions of the Jewish scriptures. I think he's actually showing that this idea of hardening is a clear biblical concept attested to by the breadth of God's revelation. So let's think about this more. First off, hardening is spiritual blindness and deafness. Have a look at verse 8. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear to this very day. This is the the mashup quote from Isaiah and Deuteronomy, and and both of those references come from places that warn of judgment and explain God's role in giving true sight. The Deuteronomy verse comes from when Moses says to the people, you've seen all these amazing things that God has done uh, when he brought you up out of Egypt, yet you haven't believed yet. Uh, And the Isaiah verse is when Israel had rebelled against God and he said judgment would come and the Lord would blind people so that they would be confirmed in their judgment. So, what is hardening? It's when God prevents someone from truly seeing. They have eyes 
and can see, but they don't see the truth. They see God's miracles and wonders, but they don't see that it means they should fall down and worship God. They have ears and can hear, but they can't hear the truth. They hear God's warnings and God's promises, but they don't truly understand them and respond in faith. They misunderstand the message or reject the message. They are spiritually blind and deaf. And this is caused by God himself who gives them a spirit of stupor. The second truth we learn about hardening is that it's about being handed over to one's own sinful desires. Have a look at verses 9 and 10 where Paul quotes from Psalm 69. And David says, May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and their backs be bent forever. And you might wonder, how can a table be a snare? Well, perhaps it's because tables are often filled with good things, and they can become a distraction from God. People get caught up in sensual desires, uh, de delights. Uh, people get caught up in gluttony, and so they become trapped. God gives people what they deserve. He hands them over to their gluttony, or he hands them over to their sins so that their backs are bent forever. You know, they're weighed down by their greed or their immorality or their lies or their addiction. Verse 9 describes this as retribution. Oh, that's a pretty strong word, isn't it? But it really means they get what they deserve. The punishment fits the crime. This is much like Romans 1, where we read multiple times that God hands people over to their sin. And that's a really key point too, isn't it? God doesn't harden innocent people. He doesn't force good people to do bad things. Rather, he abandons sinners to their own corrupt nature. And that's something we saw recently in our Exodus series when thinking about Pharaoh and what it meant that God hardened his heart. Now, this, this idea of God handing, handing people over, uh, it's true of people in general, but it's also true of his chosen people, the Israelites. God has saved a remnant of them and hardened the rest in judgment. The fact that a vast number of Jews failed to receive righteousness by faith does not mean that God's plan has failed or that God has rejected Israel. It's just another example of what we see all throughout salvation history. So let me take you on a whirlwind tour to show you how Paul's day was typical of Israel's history. There has always been a pattern of hardened rebels and a chosen remnant. I've got some examples in your outline and some Bible references that you might like to look up later. So the first stop is at Mount Sinai. Uh, not long after being rescued from slavery in Egypt, the newly formed nation of Israel made a golden calf and bowed down and worshipped it. And this act of idolatry and rebellion led to 3,000 of them being killed in judgment. Yet in the midst of this heinous act of rebellion, we see the tribe of Levi rally to Moses' side and God blesses them. Then after the Israelites made it into the promised land, God sent a series of judges to lead them. Yet things just spiral down into darkness and chaos and immorality. It ends with a chilling statement about how in those days, everyone did as they saw fit. Yet the book of Ruth is set within this time. And in the midst of those dark days, we meet the noble couple, Ruth and Boaz. And they're held up as exemplary people who trust in God and are blessed by him. 
In fact, one of their descendants was David, who became king and united the 12 tribes of Israel. Yet, God's people continued to rebel against him. The Lord sent prophets to warn them, but they broke God's law. They worshipped idols and even killed the prophets. Eventually, God sent the nation of Assyria against his people, decimating the ten northern tribes. Only Judah and Benjamin in the south were preserved. And this was only because of God's promises to David, who was from Judah. I mean, that was an act of God's grace and mercy. They didn't deserve it. And so these two southern tribes, they continued as the kingdom of Judah. Yet even they rebelled against God and followed the ways of their northern brothers and sisters. Before long, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came and captured Jerusalem. He carried off a remnant of the people into captivity in Babylon. Although they were in exile for 70 years, God still preserved them as an act of mercy. And this remnant was uh, eventually permitted to return to the promised land, where they rebuilt the city of Jerusalem and rebuilt the temple. They never again worshipped idols and they strived to uphold the law of the Lord. Yet they had finally learned their lesson, or at least it seemed that way until Jesus arrived. You know, the prophets had foretold the coming of the Messiah who would come at the climax of history and usher in a golden age for Israel. Yet when Jesus came as the promised Messiah or Christ, they rejected him too. A large number of Jews were hostile and resistant to Jesus. But this was still part of the pattern of salvation history. God was hardening the hearts of rebels and only showing mercy to a chosen remnant. And Jesus himself knew this pattern would be revealed in his ministry. Uh, listen to what he says in Mark chapter 4, uh, verses 11 and 12. This is after sharing the, the parable of the sower. He, he says this, uh, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. This is a quote from Isaiah chapter 6, where God told that prophet, the prophet Isaiah, that people would reject him and his message because God would harden people. And that happened for Jesus too. And this, in fact, is the very spirit of stupor that Paul speaks about. And, you know, the really sad part of this is that by rejecting Jesus, the Jews were cutting themselves off from the very source of God's grace and mercy. Remember in today's passage, we've seen that the remnant was chosen by grace. In verse 6, we see that this is not based on works, otherwise grace wouldn't be grace. And so on what basis could God show grace to his stubborn, hard-hearted people? Well, it's through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus was rejected by his own people. He was arrested, tortured, and condemned to death. I mean, surely this would be enough for God to give up on the Jews for good. But no, God proved at the cross that he'd not rejected Israel because in the midst of their most terrible act of rebellion ever, God was providing a way to show mercy to them. As Jesus died on the cross, he was bearing the punishment for Israel's rebellion. And not just Israel, but in fact the whole world. Jesus died for the times that you and I harden our hearts towards God. 
for all the times we shake our fist at him and tell him to get lost, for all the times we decide that we know best and turn our backs on his commands. Jesus died in our place so that mercy could be shown to us instead of the wrath that we deserve. When God chooses to save some people by grace, he chooses to apply the work of Christ to them so that they are forgiven and thus restored to their creator. And so if you're tuning in today and you're not a Christian, then please listen to this message. Don't let your eyes be blind and your ears be deaf. Turn back to God and put your faith in Jesus. God loves to show mercy. And if you pray to him in faith, he will save you. If you want to know more about how to become a Christian, then please get in touch with us. If you are already a Christian, then I hope this understanding of how God has worked throughout salvation history will help you get a better perspective on the shape of God's people today. In fact, we'll finish now by thinking about that idea. First, this pattern of remnant and hardening explains why there are more Gentile Christians than Jewish Christians. Many Jews still reject Jesus today. And that might trouble us. You know, if Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, then why have so many Jews rejected him? I mean, maybe they know something that we don't. Maybe he's not really the Savior after all. Well, it's actually part of God's plan that many Jews would be hardened in unbelief. And this is not just Paul coming up with a convenient explanation. This actually fits with the pattern of salvation history. Also, though, the fact that there are not as many Jewish Christians today doesn't mean that God is done with Israel. He's not finished with them. And we're going to talk about that some more next week. Also, I should say that yeah, there is ultimately one people of God. And so the relationship between Israel and the church is something that we'll explore next week as well. Secondly, this pattern explains why the church fluctuates in size and social status. You might notice that in our big idea today, we're looking at how God often chooses just a remnant to be saved. This is not how he always works. Sometimes there are many people who believe and turn to God. Sometimes the church is large and influential and experiences times of great blessings. There, there have been times of revival and great awakenings. But there are other times when the church shrinks and drops in influence. And in one sense, that's okay. That's the pattern throughout history. It doesn't mean that God has rejected us or abandoned us. I remember once, many years ago, being at a Christian union meeting at La Trobe University and someone brought their atheist boyfriend along and he was an art student and he was older than me and so I actually felt intimidated by him. He said to me that you know, Christianity is clearly not true because it's shrinking. You know, People are realizing it's false and that's why there are less and less Christians. Yeah, we're getting smarter and smarter and we don't need all this God nonsense and people are waking up to the truth. Now, I knew he was wrong, but at the time, I couldn't explain why. I've since understood that while Christianity may be declining in Australia, it's on the rise in other parts of the world. Like in China, for example. Did you know that there are more Christians in China than there are Australians in Australia? So we mustn't make Elijah's mistake and think that we're the only faithful ones left. But also, 
passage like a like Romans 11, 1 to 10 is really useful because it reminds us that God's people will not always be as big and influential as we might expect. Your truth is not determined by majority or popular vote. Sometimes there will be a hardening and only a remnant chosen by grace. Conversions can slow down. People leave the church and so numbers decrease. And it can cause us to question whether the gospel is actually true. But this is the sort of pattern that has always occurred. And so it shouldn't trouble us. I mean, sure, we should pray more, but we shouldn't feel that God has rejected us. Thirdly, we can see the pattern of Israel even occur within churches because there can be unbelieving church members. What I mean is the nation of Israel was God's chosen nation. And while the nation looked large at times, those who are actually saved could be quite small. There was the remnant surrounded by a mass of hardened unbelievers. That's what Elijah saw in his day. And so even when the visible remnant was saved during the exile, it didn't mean that each of those Jews were genuine believers. And sadly, it can be the same with church today. There can be unbelievers who think they are Christians, but they're hardened to the the gospel. Now, this can be tricky because they don't oppose the church. In fact, they may love being part of the church and may be quite active. But they don't approach God on the basis of faith. They approach him through works. Yeah, they think that their church attendance or their religious deeds or their Christian family heritage is what makes them right with God. But unless they repent and believe in Jesus, they will not obtain the righteousness they seek so earnestly. Now, I doubt that anyone listening to this sermon will think, Hey, that describes me perfectly. I'm a religious unbeliever. But if by a miracle of God's work in your heart, you do sense that this could be you, if you sense that you're looking to your own efforts for your confidence, then please, I beg you, speak to me or someone else about it. As for everyone else, this truth is a reminder that you will meet people, even in the church, who have hard hearts and they will eventually reveal themselves to be unbelievers. So don't be surprised if they leave the church and turn their back on God. It's just part of the pattern throughout history. Finally, this pattern demonstrates clearly that God has never rejected his people, and so we should continue to trust in him. God has not rejected Israel since Paul himself was an Israelite, and not all who are descended from Israel are of Israel. God has not and will not reject the church or any Christian believer. He won't give up on you, so don't give up on him. God has chosen you by grace, and he won't unchoose you. We can be confident that Jesus has died for us, he's risen for us, and so grace will always be available to those who trust in him. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this wonderful reminder that you don't reject your people. Uh, While we may sometimes worry about our personal salvation uh, and we've been reassured that you foreknew and chose and called us, uh, we may then worry that, well, maybe you just reject your church as a whole. Uh, Maybe you withdraw your blessings. Uh, But we've been reminded again today that you don't reject your people. But the pattern of history is that sometimes There will be great growth in the church and sometimes the church will shrink and struggle. 
Uh, and so our job is to continue to trust in you, to continue to f- uh, pray, uh, to continue to share the good news about Jesus, and to persevere by faith. And so please strengthen us today, encourage us today, uh, help us to walk closely with Jesus. Amen.